Well, today we begin a new sermon series. We're calling it Fresh Faith. Six practices for overcoming apathy. It'll be a study of the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Are you ready for kind of a dad joke? What's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know and I don't care. You can look it up for yourself. Apathy means a lack of interest, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of concern. You can think about the causes for such a response to things. What might lead a person to be apathetic? Maybe it is indeed disappointment. That they were disappointed with something and so they turned away from it. That it just no longer captured their interest. Maybe it was an experience of drudgery. That they just got bored. Maybe it was distraction. That something else shiny popped up in their life. That combination of disappointment Drudgery and distraction can result in apathy. So what happens, though, when we end up being apathetic toward God? When we have a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern? Barna is an organization that pays attention to spiritual tendencies in our country. And they ran a survey last year. And then they compared it to numbers that they had before. And so they were looking at uh, the percent of people in our country that would uh, be considered practicing Christians. They asked people um, a, a question in which they um, were to identify themselves as Christian, agree strongly that faith is very important in their lives, and that they had to have attended church at least once in the past month. In 2000, it was 45% of the American population that were practicing Christians, that fit that definition, that considered themselves Christian, that considered faith very important uh, for life, and that they were attending church at least once in the past month. It's a pretty low bar just to be able to call yourself Christian, to say, hey, this is important, strongly agree that it's important, and then to go to church at least once a month. 2000 was 45%. In 2020, it was only 25%. It's a pretty significant drop. Of course, Christian but not practicing went up. It went from 35% to 43%. That kind of nominal. I, I'm a Christian, but I don't feel that it's very important in my life or in the lives of others, and maybe I'm not attending all that much. If you were to run a self assessment on your own apathy toward God. If each one of us, myself included, if we were to run an assessment and, and we were to use the numbers one to five and one being significantly apathetic and five being significantly in, uh, enthused about God. In fact, if we use that just as a spectrum and we take all of life and we said, what is the thing that I'm most enthusiastic about and gave it a five? The thing, just picture it in your mind. What is the thing you're most enthusiastic about, most interested in? Family, fitness, finances, maybe a certain sport or being on a team or your education or your career. Whatever it is, how would faith 
stack up against that in terms of enthusiasm, passion, commitment. Well, for the audience of Malachi, they were in a season of pretty deep apathy. In Peter Veroff's description, he's a, a new, uh, an Old Testament scholar and has a commentary on, on the book of Malachi. Here's how he describes the context, the people in which, uh, to which Malachi was uh, speaking and then eventually it being codified in writing. He put it this way, that if you were to think of the people of Judah at that time, and by the way, Judah is a much reduced area of land, uh, some uh, 430 years before the time of Jesus. He described it this way, a couple of thousand returned exiles, along with an unknown number who have stayed behind, subjected to a foreign government, experiencing plagues and pests, a people whose spirituality and moral aspects of their family life are in deep decline, a people wrestling with the problem of vindicating the justice of God in the face of their adverse circumstances. How can God be just given that our lives look like this? This context resulted for them in a choice to be apathetic about their devotion to God. And so God speaks to them through the prophet Malachi in order to right the ship, to encourage a new path forward for them, to go from apathy to, to enthusiasm and passion. So let's jump into the text. The first verse of Malachi chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The oracle, this word, it turns out, has a sense of, uh, of heaviness to it, a, a sense of sorrow, a sense of deepness. Like, like this is important, but not necessarily in a happy way. The oracle of the word of the Lord, God speaking in this proclamation, God speaking to his people Israel. Israel was uh, a name that God gave to Jacob, and, and Jacob was uh, the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was the father of the, of the 12 tribes of Israel. God called Jacob Israel, and that name stuck. There was at one time a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had long been wiped out, and the name, though, Israel, stuck with God's people. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. There's some discussion as to who this Malachi is. Some scholars even say that it's not really an individual's name. It's more of a title, my messenger. And yet it seems that the preponderance of evidence would, would lead to the, being this individual uh, called Malachi. Malachi 1.1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Well, this oracle begins with an indicative. As Malachi brings his message to God's people, he provides a statement. He tells them what is true. If you have the scripture in front of you, we'll also put it on the screen. Here's what he says in verses 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? 
Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The indicative. The indicative is this. God says, I have loved you. It's the statement. In fact, there's this pattern in Malachi's writing where there's a statement made, a rebuttal comes next, and then an explanation of the statement follows. The statement from God, the indicative, what is true. I have loved you. The rebuttal, how have you loved us? They were living in a time where they were discouraged. They were disappointed. Faith had become a drudgery for them. And they were distracted by other things in their lives. The explanation God provides is that he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Maybe a little refresher on the story of uh, Jacob and Esau. We've already mentioned Abraham. God said in, in the midst of time, he goes, I'm going to choose Abraham. I'm going to start a whole family through him. In fact, he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing. And all the world, all the families of the world are going to be blessed through you. And so Abraham was married to Sarah and Sarah and Abraham did not have a child until they were well advanced in age and God provided them Isaac. Isaac would grow up and he would marry Rebecca and Rebecca was also barren and so uh, a prayer to God and God responded and and it turned out that there was wrestling going on inside of Rebecca. And here, when she uh, went to God and prayed to him, this is what God said to her from Genesis chapter 25. God said to Rebecca, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Do you get this? That even, even before they were born, even before they had done anything of merit or non-merit, God had made a choice. The older would serve the younger. So Esau was born first. Esau would grow to be an adventurous person, a person of the wilderness, the, uh, the hunter, whereas Jacob was altogether different. Jacob came out grasping the heel of Esau, Jacob means to grasp the heel, or in other words, he cheats. Jacob the cheater. And so when they grew, that there came a time when, when Esau was hungry and Jacob was making a stew and, and he uh, would sell Esau a bowl of stew for Esau's birthright. And Esau agreed. He gave away his birthright. Later, Jacob would steal... Um, uh, um, uh, Jacob would steal uh, his father's blessing. He would steal Esau's blessing. 
God loved Jacob. He hated Esau. What does this mean? How are we to understand this? Well, to love, and we've talked about this before, that, that love in the Bible is an action. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love, love is an action, at least in the way that God chooses to reach out and to love us, and that we're called to love others. The action here is that God chose Jacob. It was an unconditional choice. It was an unconditional election. There was nothing that Jacob had done to merit God's choosing. God simply chose To love was to choose, to make Jacob a part of the covenant. And Esau did not receive the covenant. And so the Bible tells us in the terms of, but Esau I hated. To love was to choose. God chose. We know in the New Testament it says that God desires all to be saved. But we also know that not everyone will be saved. Not one of us deserves God's love. God chooses to give his love. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. To be loved is to be a child of the covenant. To be loved by God is to be a child of the covenant. We know that life in this world can be hard and difficult. We know personally that pain and sorrow is a part of life. Whether we've experienced in our own family or in people we know, we are so saddened when a parent has to bury a child. We know of people who have to wake up every day and and their body is in pain. We know in this world that there's such brokenness and sinfulness that people live under an oppressive hand all the time. We know that the economy is not the same for everybody. We know that there are people that go to bed hungry. We know that there is disease. We know that there is loss. Marriages that fall apart. Parents and children that are separated because of something that occurred. We know in this world that there's pain and sorrow. In the midst of that, God says, I have loved you. How have you loved us? Don't you know of the pain and the sorrow we have in our lives? I have loved you. I have chosen you and made you a child of the covenant. I have loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. God just chooses to love. So you are loved. You are chosen. You ask, how do I know if I'm chosen? If you're here at all, if you have that leaning of wanting to know this God, you can know with assurance, you can have that encouragement that God has chosen you. This year we have been focusing on I belong. The first uh, question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in, in, in life and in death? That I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an acknowledgement of being a child of the covenant. You are loved. 
That's the indicative. This oracle, though, is also an oracle of judgment. And so let's go ahead and turn our attention to Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Judgment. Judgment identifies what is wrong. In the statement, we're told that here's what is wrong. You neither honor nor fear me. You neither, you, you neither show me the kind of response that is due my glory. You don't consider my weightiness, my identity. You do not honor me, and you do not fear me. Fear, we've struggled with that word in our culture just because it has a series of meanings. Within the Within the context of a covenant, fear is reverence and awe. Here's what is wrong. You neither honor me nor fear me. The rebuttal comes. How have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? And the explanation, by offering polluted food on my altar and by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Do you get the picture? 
So there's the temple, the rebuilding of the temple, and there's the priests that are operating on behalf of the people, and they're saying, go ahead and bring whatever you want in to sacrifice to God. We'll burn it. It doesn't really matter. And people are bringing blemished animals. Even though the law of Moses had long ago said that the right kind of sacrifice is to bring your best, to sacrifice the unblemished, to bring your best into the Lord's house. But here it's all shifted. It's changed. There's a series of pronouncements here. We'll use the word pronouncement. The first is this. Pronouncing their sacrifices unworthy. And in case they didn't get the picture, here's how he puts it. Listen, would you bring this to your governor? If you were to bring what you're giving me to your governor, do you think you'd get any favor out of him? It's the argument of the lesser uh, to the greater. So it'd be like this for us. Um, we might think, let's see, do I pay more attention to my car than I do to my spouse? Do, do I uh, pay more attention to uh, my Facebook than I do to my children? Do I pay the lesser to the greater? We might put it this way, that how would my coach react, or my boss, how would my coach react if I demonstrated the same level of apathy that I have toward God, if I demonstrated that apathy toward my sport. There's a second pronouncement. Shut the door. He says it in verse 10. He goes, oh, if there was just a person who would just shut the doors to the temple so that nobody would light the fires in vain. So messed up is their devotion. The third pronouncement is that there's lackluster enthusiasm, lackluster passion, lackluster commitment. The charge comes in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. You snort. It's that sense of coming in, we got to go to church again. We got to show up. It's so boring. We end up going through the motions. We'd much rather be somewhere where we can be entertained it's the whole difference between feeling and commitment. We, we, we just want to feel good. So can we just go to the, and do the things that make us, us feel good? Rather than turning that around and going, how great is God in deserving of all my commitment? There's a fourth pronouncement. God says, cursed be the cheat. The, the, those who, who think they can just kind of get by with, well, God and I have an arrangement. I'll just kind of do it halfway. After all, Being a Christian is all about getting a ticket to heaven, so I got my ticket, and I'll go ahead and live my life my way, and and then in the end, it'll all work out. There's a fifth pronouncement. It actually occurs multiple times. It pops up at the end of that first section in verse 5. It twice occurs in verse 11, and then once more in verse 14. The pronouncement is essentially this. My name will be great among the nations. This is the contrasting pronouncement. Listen, your response to me, your worship has been unworthy in your sacrifices. In fact, you should shut the door. Your your enthusiasm is lackluster at best. You cheat in your faith. But get this, my name will be great 
among the nations. That will happen regardless. We know that the Bible says one day, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that God is God. Okay, so if that's the oracle of judgment, what we're going to discover through our study of Malachi is that each word of judgment comes with an implied imperative. An implied imperative. If we first remember the judgment, unworthy sacrifice, better to shut the door, lackluster enthusiasm, cheaters in their faith, here's the implied imperative. Bring God your best. Bring God your best. And please know, best is not some kind of honed skill that only a, a certain few have, like, like we can merit God's favor. Bringing our best is simply a choice. A choice toward the consistent, toward the authentic, toward the fully present, toward the passionate surrender. Bring God your best. You know, we might come up with our own excuses. Listen, this is so Old Testament. How can Malachi still apply today? After all, this is geared toward priests. This probably, it probably applies to, to Bob and Joss more than the rest of us. And yet then we read something in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ we are made into a royal priesthood, every single one of us. We might even come up with the excuse of, well, you no long, we no longer really have sacrifices. Jesus took care of that. He's the great sacrifice. And yet then we read in Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifices. We ourselves become those sacrifices. You know, if we're passionate about something, it shows up in our behavior. It shows up in our behavior. The implied imperative is that we would bring God our best, that we would choose to be passionate, that we would choose to be passionate. A couple weeks ago, we reminded ourselves of that what we do here as a church is that we reveal the kingdom of God, that that's really what we do. That's our work, is to reveal the kingdom of God. We do that in our worship, in our discipleship, our fellowship, and our mission. To bring our best, to bring God our best, to reveal the kingdom of God, to talk about passion, waking up and making it a choice each day. God, I want to reveal your kingdom in the world today. I want to reveal your kingdom. I want to be creative about it. I want to think about it. I want to bring my A game to revealing your kingdom in this world. The implied imperative is that every part of life would be given to revealing the kingdom of God. We would bring that commitment to worship. God, I come not just to be entertained. I come not just to sing my favorite song. I come to glorify your name because you are worthy of all of that. We come to discipleship not because we happen to like our small group or a certain Bible class, but because we know that God is at work transforming us into the image of His Son. And so we come and we say, God, would you teach me something new? Would you challenge me to let go of something that is not of you? 
and to live according to your ways. We come to fellowship and all of fellowship, not just a fellowship event. We come to those relationships, to marriages and parenting and, and treating our parents and, and reaching out to our neighbors. We come to those fellowship moments with a passion to serve God. And the same with mission that we would go and we would make a difference across zip codes and across cul-de-sacs and we would show up saying, God, I am here for you. We began our time talking about apathy, that it's this lack of enthusiasm, lack of concern, lack of interest. One more argument we might throw out is, well, I can't help what I feel. I just feel what I feel. Well, it turns out we actually can address our feelings. We don't want to deny our feelings. Don't hear, mishear me. Acknowledging feelings is really important. Being aware of feelings, not just pushing them under, that's super important. And yet we can make choices. And so when we hear this, the God who created the universe, who is holy and all-powerful, has chosen you to be his child. He has loved you. God has sent his son to die for you that you could be reconciled to him. You are loved by the Savior of your soul. It is well within your reach, well within my reach, to alter our course and watch our spiritual apathy become passionate enthusiasm. God sent Malachi to his people who were given to apathy. To whatever degree apathy resides in each one of us. Can we hear those words afresh and respond so that wherever we might be on our one to five scale, we would jump to a five, we would go to a five, we would lean into a five, we would direct ourselves toward a five and be passionate in our commitment, knowing that God always brings his best toward us. Let's pray together. Father, you know us well. There's nothing we can do to hide any aspect of who we are before you. God, you know the level of importance we've put on our faith in our lives the relative importance that we have compared to other things that we put our attention to. And to whatever extent apathy resides in us, God, we pray that there wouldn't be no unhealthy shame, that, that instead that there would be this conviction, that, that it would be constructive conviction, that your spirit would convict our hearts and that we would choose you, that we would let go of any sense of, well, what do I have to do? And more of, God, how can I respond to your greatness? So work in us that we would develop that pattern, that we would bring you our best. We would bring you a passionate, enthusiastic response to your goodness. Remind us today, remind us today how much we are loved by you, chosen 
by your grace, to be your children. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.